Was there anything that anybody was waiting to announce to the group that we sometimes at the end don't remember to make time for an announcement? Announce. <laughs> we do have three baskets in the back that you may have noticed on your way in. One is for the class B, which helps keep the lights on at Spirit Life. The small basket in the middle is for the homeless. Um, the money provides food for those in San Rafael uh, that need it. And then thirdly, in the long tradition, started with the Buddha who gave his teachings freely. Um, Sylvia does the same. She doesn't receive any uh, remuneration from Spirit Rock. So uh, the third basket is a Donna basket for any contribution that you would like to make uh, in appreciation of the teachings and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, where's Ruth? Do you want to, do you want to put that phrase into a context? Do you know that beginning of that phrase, when the iron bird flies. I don't know it exactly, but some prognosticator in the history of Buddhism, talking about the spread of Buddhism, said that Buddhism would come to the West when the iron bird flies. And said that a long time ago, before there were iron birds flying. So. Huh? And when horses go on wheels. And when horses go on wheels, he said that as well. <laughs> so who said it? It should be very easy to Google when the iron bird flies and horses go on wheels. You can Google anything. Do you know who said it, or this is another? You know, you wonder what uh, we've lived. Uh, um, depending on how you know how old we are, we've lived through the most amazing century. You know, seems to me, maybe people always thought this is the most amazing century, but um, you know, to to imagine. Well, there's nobody now that didn't have electric lights, but before flying, uh, I mean, there were people flying in 19... I'm thinking about my friend who's 95, and so that makes her having been born in, what, 95, uh, 1918. Um, that's a long time ago. <laughs> In terms of what what becomes commonplace, um, and my grandchildren don't remember not having cell phones. Um, so who knows? This is an incredible time. Yeah. I I just wanted to mention I saw a wonderful play in Berkeley, and someone may have mentioned that before the fourth messenger. I just heard about that last night. Tell about it. Well, it's it's playing at the. Sort of a modern day story of the modern day Buddha, yeah. and it's it's a musical, and mm -hmm. it's really quite yes. Yeah, Jane Barra said, "I said, is it good?" She said, "I've seen it five times." So they're also going to be back there Sunday night, so that'll make six times for Jane. So it must be good. Yeah, it's called what? For the Fourth Messenger. Huh. Okay. And you can, you can go to fourthmessenger.com to get information about it. It's 
planks for March 10th. Okay. And it's supposed to be really quite wonderful. It's a very little theater, that Ashby Theater, too, so you're practically sitting on the stage, so you can really see. It's, it's, it's a good venue to go. So we do have... We do have a continuation of things to talk about from last week, and um, I, I don't want it to seem hum, ho-hum about, you know, we're just continuing to talk about, can you say the whole Dharma in three words? But <laughs> continuing on that same vein, <laughs> there was, uh, what did we take this out of? I don't know what I saw this cartoon. But here it is. There are two. Have you seen? It must be in the New Yorker. Do you know where it came from? Was it in the New Yorker or somewhere? I saw it online. Yeah, it was on the Spirit Rock website. It was on the Spirit Rock website. Maybe it came out somewhere. So do you see it? There are two dogs, and they're sitting on, they're sitting on zabutans, um, with in a cross-legged position, and they have candles lit behind them and incense in front of them. And one of them is saying to the other, the key to meditation is learning to stay. <laughs> but it's a, a, and it's actually, it's actually very good. <laughs> what would you like to say? What do you think about that? What do you think? Learning, learn, take that sentence. Someone said you're on a debate team. You're now going to explain what does it mean the key to meditation is learning to stay. I could think of 10 things that I could say it means. What does it mean? Well, for me, about halfway through the sitting, I was running away. Physically or your mind? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, right? Yes. Okay. So, uh, learning to stay. What did you do in order to stay? Well, the attention moves around like that, and and uh, it's 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 always been. Uh, I don't think about it all the time, but I I remember at some point realizing that I could look at a room full of people as I did this morning. Every once in a while, I open my eyes to see if everything's all right or what's going on or. I just think to open my eyes, and I look around, I enjoy what I see. And I, I, I've had the thought, on and off over the years, that all you see is everybody calm of visage. You can't tell what's going on in people. And that if there were actually balloons over everybody's head, with, you know, the cartoon balloons, where there's a balloon and bubbles coming down to the person, so you just know what's in their mind, and there could be a picture in each balloon of what's going on in there. You can see somebody calm like anything and thinking, you know, thinking like some kind of wrathful thoughts, a war. Or somebody else could be a volcano erupting. Maybe, maybe that would be a good picture in your balloon, Rich, as you were thinking, you know, I have to get out of here. Or somebody's thinking about pizza or um, <laughs> what else? Ping pong balls, this, 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 bouncing off the walls. What else would we see in there? Some, <laughs> some people, I think we'd see a lot of Zs. <laughs> and actually, they're asleep or drowsy, but they're still sitting up. Because I was thinking of the shawl in the bookcase, the bookstore that I wanted to buy. Yeah. <laughs> the Dharma shawl. <laughs> so, so Nancy, I think that that's actually Nancy. Yes. yes, I think that's actually key to one of the things that we're going to say is that desire keeps the mind interesting. Oh, I could get that Dharma shawl, you know, and I'd be so much warmer in here. By the way, it's very hot in here today. Where's, where's our monitor? Can you turn that down a little bit? Uh, 
could be a good Dharma shawl. person next to me has a good shawl. Look at that. That's a good shawl. And what's more, I could wear it to a garden party in the spring because it's a good color. So it wouldn't be totally like a wanton, you know, wouldn't be just a one-use thing. I could use it a lot of things. could put it over my piano. It could hang down as a piano cover. So, and so the mind does all that stuff, and it sits quietly, you know. And you don't know how much time it does that. And it's a, it's a really interesting point, because when, when, when awareness arises, hey, my mind is filled with lust, it's already gone, you know, when you think, hey, my mind is filled with lust. And you realize you're in here, you're not in there, you're not actually going through it. And say, okay, well, phew, that's gone. I'll just take, here's my, I'm not, I'll just find my breath. Your breath is already there. You say, oh, look at that, mind of lust. But not, oh, mind of lust, that was terrible. Just mind of lust, and it goes away. I mean, I, I talked last week about being so uh, taken by um, a word I recently learned in a Dharma book by Michael Singer. And he said, when you say, he said, everything goes through your mind. He said that there's, there's no way at all that you can be in charge of what goes through it. He said the only thing you can do is not make a commotion about it. And I love that word, commotion, you know, because nobody used it but your grandmother. You know, there's a, you know what's that commotion downstairs? You know, that, it's an old word, commotion. I told it to my friend Jack Cornfield. I said, don't you like that? We should talk commotion to teach. He said, that's a very good word because it's like co-motion. Like there's already the motion of the mind into lust, and now there's the, the motion of the attention that goes with it into the lust and serves it up. So you don't have to do that. You could notice, okay, that went, but I'm still here. Not make a commotion about it. <laughs> so that's it. You could make a... You know, the, that the, sh- the, the balloon with the shawl is, is, could sit next to the balloon with the pizza, or the balloon that now is thinking about that Dharma film festival. I should pick up a brochure about that and see what other films are going to be. And what's more, Berkeley, I could go to Ashby, the Ashby Theater and see that before it leaves. Jane went five times. And it could elaborate on all those lusts. It just doesn't, you know, and the whole sense of it is that's what, minds do they it's like the heart beats and the body vibrates and the brain fires cognitions and thoughts and impressions and you can leave them alone and you can you can be aware of them if you have a cognition that's a bear coming around the corner you know you want to do something about it you don't want to just have that cognition you know you want to respond to it but not everything requires a big response Interesting to think about that. Thinking about uh, what keeps the mind. Well, I was thinking about two things this week. What keeps the mind in a in a buoyant enough mood? Um, I had I had I had this experience happen to me, and it really made a big uh, uh, impression on me. One, the words at the end of the story, which I decided I would tell you about. I went to pick up my granddaughter from school the other day, and I was waiting outside. And two people, a generation younger than I, I recognized them because uh, you know you keep on picking up people from the same school. You recognize the other parents and grandparents, so I recognized them. And she knew me because for I'd come and talk to the parents in that school. And so we were having a little conversation, and she said. Uh, uh, you, you can't imagine. I said, I haven't seen you in a while. And I said, well, I've been out of the country for three months. So I'll tell you, you have no idea what happened to us. She said, uh, in December, my husband had a lot of headaches. He was having a lot of headaches. And he went to doctors, and they tried to diagnose it. And uh, uh, they couldn't figure out what it was. But, you know, he's a young man. They said, it's probably migraine, stress. You're working too hard. Take it easy. You know, the rest of you seems fine. And, but he didn't feel right about that. He went to see yet further doctors about his headaches. And I said, nah, you know, try this, try that, do this, do that, neuromuscular or something. Went to another doctor. He said, this isn't right. I really want to have an MRI. So he was there. He went to see somebody else. He said, no, nah, I don't think you need an MRI. 
And uh, there was, uh, uh, by this time the husband had arrived, and he said, you know, the, but there was this young new doctor with this other person just assisting or doing a residency or something. And she said, well, you know, uh, why don't we order an MRI for him just to make him feel relaxed about it? So they order an MRI. They wait, they come back, they say, you have a brain tumor. And we need to take it out right away because we don't know where, what kind of, you can't do a biopsy on a brain tumor. So they make an appointment for five days hence to have the surgery. And uh, they, said, they said in those five days, they gave five parties, open houses. They invited everybody they knew every day. They invited people, different people for the five days. People came for a party uh, and they had a great time. They said, you know, people came and he said, I realized how many people love me. And we got so happy and grateful for all our friends that were supporting us and look, all these people love me. And I was really appreciating the preciousness of life and friendship and how beautiful it is in California in December. The days were beautiful. We were incredibly high about this. And then I went and had the surgery and the surgery was successful and the tumor was completely benign and it's likely not to happen again. So he said, you know, but the whole thing is, by the time they went in, he said, it could have been not. They said, I was in such a shape that I was really, it was all right with me, whatever it was. I was so in love with being awake and in this world and with these friends. So we talked about that a little bit. And, I, you know, I said, you know, just not to go into the whole story, uh, I, I said, you know, I'm happy to hear about it. You know, my husband took similarly ill and he's better also miraculously. But during that time, I said, I thought about how many people I said, I was even on the other side of the world, but I knew all these people were thinking about us. And it, was, it wasn't like they were in my house, but it was like I knew from, from all my emails that they were all thinking. And I felt accompanied and I felt very buoyed up that I wasn't doing it alone. And he came out all right. I said, but you know, we were talking about after an event like that, you're so woken up, they really appreciate the preciousness of life. And, the fact that every friend of yours is so valuable to you and every moment that you get up in the morning is so incredible. And then we talk about after a while, it becomes ordinary. And then you just hoe up and then you go back and you just go to work and you have a life and you get annoyed because the freeway is crowded or you get, you get a ticket for two minutes sitting too long in a parking meter or something else annoys you. Or, the bill is too high on the gas bill and it shouldn't be or something or other. And the normal junk of life, which with an expanded consciousness, you, 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 you know about, but it doesn't do anything to you, starts to really grab you again and say, why is it that we can't stay awake? What causes you not to stay awake? You know, because we talked about the fact that these kinds of near brushes with, with mortality are, are very big wake-up calls, but it's, it's very trying on the nervous system <laughs> to have those as everyday wake-up calls. How to have a mindfulness bell without scaring yourself so much every day. That, uh, there must be a way to stay awake. There are people who get up every day and say, since I am a human being and since it's the nature of human beings, to become ill, I'm going to someday become ill, maybe today, I will someday die, maybe today. They do a reflection like that. I don't know, to my taste, that's a little macabre. I, I don't want to get up and do that. You know, Nancy, what? Yeah, I went to hear Hawaiian music Sunday night, and there was this gorgeous guy, 72 years old, really in bad physical, like he could hardly hobble out of the stage, but just radiant. And before he started to play, he just, he the whole time and he said this amazing thing happened at 12.01 a new day started it's going to last all the way until midnight <laughs> <laughs> just sure joy you know to be able to do that you know as you're saying that I think about the injunctions in Psalms um, uh, this is the day the Lord has made let us rejoice and be happy therein that's, that's, like, that's like an instruction you know, 
This is the only day it's going to be today. We can't wait for the day of t tomorrow when it's going to be a good day. Leonard Cohen was in Berkeley or is in Berkeley? Will be in Oakland. Even though it all goes wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. How does Leonard Cohen do that? You know, that's, that's really the great spiritual question. How do we keep the mind in a remembrance of hallelujah, if not an experience of hallelujah? My own sense is that it's a, at least a remembrance of. Now, you know, now that, that it's hard for me to imagine that there are blows from which I would not reel, you know, impossibly. But to be able to remember that in this world, reeling is one of the things that people do from time to time. But, uh, it, but, but joy is a possibility and appreciation and vulnerability. So that's really one of the questions about how do, how do we stay without, um, how do we stay not falling into a ho-hum? What are the practices? But I guess, well, you tell me. I think all of the practices that we do, that we do as practices, maybe that's the clue. That when people say to me, as they sometimes do, uh, I'm, I'm terribly embarrassed. I've just come back to class. I've been in class for a long time, and I haven't practiced for a year. And I'm, I'm always surprised a little bit because what I think they mean is I, I have not, like the, like the cartoon, I haven't sat down on a zavutan with crossed legs and lit candles or incense and tried to meditate in a year is what they mean. But I think we're practicing all the time. From the time we're born, we're practicing. From minute to minute, we're trying to figure out how am I going to do this moment with the most comfort for myself. We're trying to keep ourselves comfortable all the time. We're strategizing what will make me more comfortable. Sometimes more adeptly than other times. Sometimes causing ourselves a lot of trouble because we choose wrong in, the, in, the, in the, what's going to make me comfortable. But I think we're practicing all the time. But I think that things get made into practices. I think that sitting down on a zafu is not necessarily a practice. It could be just taking a rest, <laughs> which is okay also. <laughs> I could imagine sitting down on a zafu and planning next Thanksgiving's dinner. I mean, but it wouldn't be bad. It might be skillful. It might calm your nerves. It might put you in touch with the fact that you're hopeful that you'll be around next Thanksgiving and that you'll want to make dinner on Thanksgiving. I'm not sure that anything can't be free. Think of something that could not be a practice. Okay, then. I just did this. I read, I read Singer's book. I finished it yesterday. Oh, yeah, there you go. And the thing of every day could be your last day. And so swimming was easy. It was beautiful yesterday to be out in the bay swimming. It's like, yeah, this is what I do on my last day. But I also had a doctor's appointment and I had to do the laundry. And, <laughs> and I just started thinking, oh, it's, this, it doesn't make sense to not do the laundry because this might be my last day. But, <laughs> just thinking, or to not go to the doctor, you know. But, well, could I approach it in a way that it would be okay if this is what I were doing on my last day? And I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> well, you know, James talked about that, this very point last night. Uh, who was there last night? Where? Yeah, what, you remember what he said about, because he said, he said in response to somebody saying to him, I have to go to the doctor and I have to do the laundry. He said, I get to, I, I, he said, you just have to change your wording. I get to go to the doctor and I get to do my laundry. <laughs> uh well, we were going to have that. Uh, 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 well, anyway, I'm glad you read the book. Didn't you like it? Parts of it. I stayed with it. I wasn't always there with it. And parts. I, I finished it because you talked about it. And I'm glad I finished it, but it, it wouldn't have been when I chose. It was challenging to me because he says, take the challenge to just be happy all the time. Uh, and he doesn't mean pleased. 
He doesn't mean pleased. It means don't let your mind fall into a pit. You know, it's called the untethered mind. Untethered soul. Untethered soul. Thank you. I thought I, I actually uh, I, I was captivated by it because I I uh, I liked the way he developed how you are not what you think you are. Well, I also like the line he said, "Don't let the weakest part of yourself run your life." Yeah, and that was really. Helpful. So it's got little parts that are good. Um, while, while while we're having book review. I, while we're having book review, seriously, I'm going to find it for you because this was very good. I read um, Sacred Hoops, which is the story of Phil Jackson and the Chicago Bulls and his training program of his, his, own, his own practice of Zen and meditation and uh, his developing a way of teaching the insights that he discovered in meditation to his basketball players. And I, I, there are three rules of life, which I'm about to find for you, because I, here they are. Three rules from life, which he got from his coach when he was a player. He was an ace as a coach back there. So ace, you tell me if these are the right three rules for life. He said, don't let anger Oh, this is a very good story about how he learned this one. He said, I came to New York when I was first uh, accepted on the team. And my coach was driving me on, picked me up at the airport, driving me on the freeway back to his home. And somebody was going over an overpass on the New York freeway and threw some heavy object down onto the freeway, not aiming for that car, because how would you know when that car was coming? but just someone who threw an object off an overpass and it landed on the windshield, which cracked and could have really, uh, really caused harm to them. But anyway, they drove on. And uh, he noticed that this coach who was driving kept this calm about him, didn't get infuriated or enraged. So he said the first of the rules is don't let anger or any other heavy object <laughs> thrown at you cloud your mind. So that's the rule of playing basketball. Don't let anything, don't let anger or any other strong emotion cloud your mind. There's a lot of instances in this book of players who get a, a big emotion, cloud their mind and get into trouble. The second of the rules is awareness is everything. Mm -hmm. That and the less you are in there, the more awareness is present and it takes over and playing happens by itself and good decisions happen by itself. I actually learned a lot about basketball this week, which I didn't know anything about. Seems impossibly hard now that I'm reading. Um, and the third of the rule is the power of we is greater than the power of me. So it's really interesting to read. Uh, what was the title again? Sacred Hoops. Sacred Hoops. Sacred Hoops. Basketball Hoops. The big line from that whole book, though, that I wanted to tell you about was he talked about, he said, mystical experience, something happened, some moment of sudden realization. Uh, I think it was a result of some kindness that the world is lovely. And he said, a mystical experience, he said, I realized that mystical experience didn't have to be a big production. It could be as uneventful as a moment of quiet reflection. You know that we think about what do we think about as mystical experience when people say, "Oh, you know, I I I had this intuition, or I saw the clouds in a certain way." Maybe it's just a moment of kindness, or a moment where the coach doesn't get all inflamed because something lands on the windshield, and you suddenly realize, "Oh, there's another way to live," you know could live in a more peaceful way. Without commotion. Without commotion. So maybe that's enough book report. Actually, there's another book by Phil Jackson coming out this spring called uh, Eleven Rings for, for the 11 NBA championship rings. Um,
But I thought about yes. Oh, tell about it. So I want to say, I want, <laughs> uh, anybody else has a book? <laughs> Actually, I just read a great biography of Leonard Cohen. Um, yeah. I'm Your Man by Sylvie Simmons. No, I'm Your Man. Yeah. All right. So I want to, I want to go, I want to take up one more little topic and then I'm going to ask you to take up the topic of uh, the, that we left last week about how do you know What's your experience of enough? Explain an experience of enough. The, uh, the, the particular topic in James's class last night was the topic of gratitude. And someone asked me afterwards, so I, I needed to talk about gratitude. That was my part. And someone asked me afterwards about, uh, did Buddhists have a practice of gratitude? Was it gratitude meditation? And I didn't remember one I didn't I don't think it's formally it's, it's not part of the spiritual faculties it's not part of the uh, wise gratitude is not part of the Eightfold Path it, as itself but then I thought maybe in, in, in a certain way it's the whole of the path wise gratitude because it means having a mind if it really if I had if I, if I didn't relapse, relapse into ho-hum, maybe I would get up and say, wow, since 12.01 this morning, I have a whole new day. And with my mind in that sort of a expanded place, nothing would irritate it. I'd be amazed. I'd be so thrilled to be alive. That would ace out everything else that you know, every traffic ticket, you say, far out, traffic ticket. <laughs> City of San Rafael is now $12 richer because I'll pay this traffic ticket. Then be able to employ somebody else. You know, there would be a way to... The image that I have of that kind of a mind, I, I, I realize I keep doing like this, but the Tibetans have a line in which they say, um, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. That if your mind space is big enough, then suddenly you get a parking ticket. You say, ah, phooey, got this parking ticket. You don't say, you don't necessarily have to rejoice in it. But it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, maybe you could, but it doesn't, it doesn't really uh, diminish the, uh, the particular base of peace and ease that I think all of us would like to cultivate so that we could have fully emotional lives as people. I want to have a fully emotional life as people. I want to be proud and um, delighted and um, even uh, uh, indignant if I hear that something isn't happening right in such and such a, with the culture, we have to fix that or we have to fix that. I want to feel aroused to do something about it and to make a difference and to serve. I don't want to say, well, you know, karma unfolds and this is the way it's happening. I want to have responses to it. I don't want my mind to be, the mind's, the line in the faith verses is the essential, uh, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. I don't want to disturb the essential peace of my mind. There's no avail to that. It's better off if my mind keeps some measure of essential peace and in the middle of it, I know what makes me excited and what makes me uh, uh, eager to be there or uh, wanting to do that. I want to have a whole range of uh, uh, emotions. I, I assume that you do too, don't you? Um, I, I, I really assume that. I, I think that the... Uh, hmm. 
I'm thinking of the people, one, I'm trying to remember the name of, um, I don't know if it was Sokni Rinpoche or one of the Tibetan teachers who said to um, Guy Armstrong, who has said to groups that we've taught together, that that particular teacher's instruction was stay juicy. You know, remain a remain a, a, a warm person, in normal in your life and responsive to life, responsive but not reactive, responsive. Can you imagine a, a mind that could be grateful for everything? I've thought that a couple of times. I remember once in a great burst of. Uh, tremendous enthusiasm for what I thought was the ultimate insight. Uh, I said to Jack, uh, I finally got it, uh, that the only thing worth saying is thank you. I don't remember even that what, what had been going on in my life at that point, but I was on retreat and it seemed to me so clear that thank you was the attitude in the mind that was the antidote to any uh, anything that arose, uh, any kalatia, any jealousy or envy or worry or indignant, uh, it comes, they say, thank you. Uh, I'll do something with that or I'll respond to that. But the essential peace not disturbed. Uh, there's that Rumi poem that says you open the door in the morning and what's there and irritation and annoyance and jealousy of this or that. Thank you. You can be p polite about it, you know. You don't need to invite it into tea, and you don't need to bar the door. But thank you. And he said, you know, and I was, I was probably a little bit overly beside myself. And uh, so I said, that's the only thing we would, I should ever say is thank you. And he very seriously said to me, what would you say, Sylvia, to a Holocaust? And I said, I, you know, I was surprised. I said, I would say no thank you. And. Uh, what would you say to a Holocaust? And I said, no, thank you. And what I meant is there are things that I adamantly, adamantly don't want to have happen. But I don't want my own anger to come up about that. What I really want, don't want is that indiscriminate anger should be out in the world. I don't have to meet anger with anger. No. Um, <coughs> Does that make, yeah, Lynn? Well, I'm thinking that the word could be to see clearly. Mm -hmm. See clearly, you see the negative, the positive, you see what is there, not so, your overlay on it. Mm -hmm. And so you could, to be able to see the Holocaust or anything that is offensive to us in its entirety mm -hmm. without reacting. Mm -hmm. I think that's those two dogs on the Zabatans saying the main thing is to be able to stay. Because I, 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 th I think it's a seriously very deep thing to be able to stay, just as you say, and see this is what's unacceptable, and this is what nevertheless happened, and this is what might happen again if people weren't vigilant. But to be able to stay and say, so therefore what I can do in the future is, and how I can be active is, but n not confusing my own mind with the frightened response to it. I think what thank you does is it keeps the mind from getting frightened, I think. And it's the fright that disturbs the mind. I think you're exactly right about staying there so you can see all the parts of it. It's like maybe the instruction for having a mind that doesn't flinch. You know, just stay there and see what's happening. So I sometimes think that it's so hard to be able to do. People say, at the end of retreats, they say, I'm afraid to go out in the world because I feel so vulnerable. Um, we get uh, tenderized in our spirit. I've, I feel that all the time at the end of the time that we sit here in the morning and say everything that's happening in our lives that we want to mention. I feel, whoa, you know. Um, it's actually, what it does for me is if there's any residue of discontent about anything in my life, 
this one didn't do this, this one didn't say that, this one didn't respond to this or that, or said something not nice. Any little discontent that seems to be floating around in my mind disappears at that point. It's like the ante gets lifted a little bit, you know, you get to see there are things that are important, and then there's the rest of stuff. And the rest of the stuff falls out of your mind, I think. Is that not your experience? It's like sobering. Maybe that's the word that I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, you, you, you talk about Thich Nhat Hanh's um, instruction for, for meditating sometimes, I don't have a toothache. Yeah. And I think that's somewhat gratitude and appreciation. And he also yeah. does that with, with meditations on appreciating your eyes and your heart for beating and yeah. your liver for functioning. And yeah, yeah. So that's a little, seems like a little bit of a gratitude practice. That's a gratitude practice that's, that actually is from a Buddhist teacher. You're right. And the, it's certainly an appreciation practice. No toothache. I love that. No toothache <laughs> is one of my favorites. Is you're walking along and you think, ah, this is boring. I'm just walking along, nothing happening. And he said, I say to myself, no toothache. You know? And, you know, it just wakes up the mind. Because at the same time, I say, no toothache, no arthritis, no this, no that, none of the other things much worse than toothaches that I could have at this moment, there are none of them here, imagine that. And sometime they might be, you know? It could be different. Yeah. Yeah, and to really tie it to a Buddhist text, it, it relates to what Donald was teaching us before he left in the, the, the uh, you know, the four, the four something. What was it? Foundations. The, the, the foundations of mindfulness, and then the five hindrances. And in the text itself, which he gave us, it says, you think about, do I have lust? Or you think about, do I not have lust? Mm -hmm. Do I have torpor? Or do I not have torpor? So if you're sitting there meditating, thinking, I don't have lust, I don't have torpor, that that's, in a sense, gratitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking, uh, it's interesting, to, it's another way of saying, I feel peaceful, I feel happy which is actually the other side of I don't have lust, I don't have torpor, I don't have this and that. Feel peaceful, feel happy, expansive. Yeah. You know, um, I love meta, and I was just thinking, I haven't reflected on it, except for the meta that I do, is it's really a form of gratitude because I'm affirming something positive about myself and my own awareness and my consciousness. And so I am Mm -hmm. I think so. That uh, that it it I what I really among the many things that I like about that particular teaching is the even the first line. This is what should be done. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. I think that it's it's so reassuring to say just do it. Not that big of a deal, you know. This is what should be done forward. You know, it's easy. It's a, uncomplicated. Just wish well, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. So you can either think of that in the way of thinking about all beings and going through this category, that category, that category, that category, systematically, which is a wonderful way to practice. The other thing that I think about is, because I, 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 when people say, how much metta practice do you do every day? I like to think that it forms the context, I like to think, I hope this is true, of how I go about my day, not when I'm sitting or thinking or praying for different people, just going about my business. And what I, I hope I am alert to is the sudden thought that isn't wishing well for some particular being, that here comes somebody around a corner of my mind or a corner of 4th Street or something, and I think to myself, ugh, Here's this person who X, Y, Z that I have a, a thought about or an opinion about or something about. I see a newspaper headline and I think, ah. And it's the arising of ah in my mind, seriously, which when we notice it, is like a cramping feeling. It's, not, it's never a, a, um, a negative thought. It's, not, it's, it's an unpleasant feeling in the mind. I don't even know if we want to do an experiment with that. Wait, wait, wait. Can we get time? You want to do an experiment? Two-minute experiment. 
Okay, so just relax. <laughs> Take some breaths in and out. Thinking about gratitude practice. People that we feel grateful they're in our lives. Think about um, imagining in your mind space uh, someone that you uh, love a lot, someone who's dear to you. And imagine them come into your mind space so you see them. And uh, actually in your own voice, in your ear space, in inner ear space, tell them thank you. <coughs> Just thanking them for being in your life. And another person, tell them thank you. And then two people, invite two different people at the same time. Thank you. I guess it'd be a little fun. Think of three people simultaneously. When you can see all three of them, tell them thank you. Take a minute and think of people you would invite into your mind. This one, that one. They don't have to leave, so you can come in, you can get a little crowd standing in your mind. Kind of like having a party in your living room in your mind. How about inviting into your party some people that you don't personally know but would personally recognize if they walked into your party, like um, Meryl Streep. About Meryl Streep <laughs> walks into your party, unexpected. Maggie Smith walks into your party, unexpected. Gloria Steinem comes into your party. How about the President of the United States walks into your party? How about two political figures whose views you do not agree with? They walk into your party as if they're invited. They go over to the buffet and they're making themselves a sandwich. <laughs> no, I'm serious. In your mind, it's a little, you, you work it out. All right, I leave you a, a minute of reflection time. You walk around in your party and Invite people to, well, introduce people to each other. While you still have your eyes closed, your mother and father arrive from this world or the next world, wherever they are.
and the Dalai Lama. And add somebody else in a category that I haven't mentioned. Think of somebody else, two or three other people from your personal or cultural repertory. People who you would recognize if they came. Anybody in this world you could invite and see how you feel, introducing everybody to everybody. Thank you for coming, you might be saying. And then open your eyes. Valida says that was exhausting. Was it exhausting? Was it interesting? So much tension. <laughs> so probably we'll come back to that. Okay, yeah, what? My name is Romy. I'm at the month-long Thank you, Romy. I'm, I'm also so, I'm, I'm so pleased, actually, that you, no, I won't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> nobody, everybody, everybody is so quiet here. We never tell anything that happened here. But it's terrific that you came down. I mean, we're here. What's to say that this isn't good for you? Maybe it's the best, maybe it's the best four hours you spent. <laughs> Not from me, just from this group or whatever. But anyway, may you thrive in every way. I love you. So who else wanted to say something? There you go. I, you know, I was very stimulated, and um, I saw Romney and, and uh, <laughs> Obama hugging and talking about how they were going to work together. And I'm a very visual person. Uh, and I just saw everybody just really liking, and people are coming up to me and saying, what a great party. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear about that. Nancy, what? It's along those lines, I got a kick out of introducing John Boehner to the Dalai Lama. <laughs> How many people invited John Boehner to their party? <laughs> uh, what else were you going to say? Yeah, go ahead. I, uh, I was very struck by Gloria Steinem last night and her, her vision of 
redoing our society and the world as uh, linking and the paradigm of a circle rather than a pyramid. And so my party felt like just everybody, everybody from the whole world could come and just feel their commonality. And I had the, the little um, disabled woman who sits outside of Oliver's selling uh, little bracelets that she makes talking with the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just all made me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy about that, Marty. Yeah. I was very, um, being the hostess, very trying to make sure that everybody was having a good time. And because of the guests who arrived, I made sure there was a lot of wine around. <laughs> because at the very end, when you have, well, I invited Oscar Pistorius mm -hmm. and Piers Morgan. Mm -hmm. And then the... And then you could see the Dalai Lama interacting and being the peacemaker and, and then other people being very angry or people... So it was this whirlwind of emotion and the wine was flowing more and more freely and eventually those who were politically aligned came together and, and it, it's like any party. I think it was um, most of the personalities there who weren't of similar mind frame, mm -hmm. knew they were acting and mm -hmm. they left with the same mind frame, even mm -hmm. though during that particular few hours they were putting on a really good show. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love it how everybody's party is completely different. Yeah. <laughs> when you introduced the Dalai Lama into the scene, I saw him bowing before every single person there and mm -hmm. bestowing that smile. You know, the people who were doing dishes in the kitchen, and it probably took him a really long time. <laughs> That's a lot. I once saw him do that, actually, in a reel, leave a hotel. And as he's leaving with his entourage, the, the, uh, the housekeeping staff of the hotel uh, sort of stood in a, uh, you know, in a, in a, making an aisle for him to walk through. And he walked through and just bowing this way and this way and this way and this way. And they were all crying. He'd been there for a week, and it, it, it just touched them so much how he was with them the whole week. So that's, a, that's really, um, thank you. Well, yes, good. Well, I just, it, the whole thing was so absurd and so funny to me. And when the Dalai Lama came in, I, you know, there was this spread of food, and I was trying to, uh, offer him something, but direct him away from the pâté de foie gras. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, what's really, what's really lovely to me is we each of us don't forget who we are, you know, <laughs> and we we assume the role of party hostess, you know. I watch this. I watch that. Yeah. I forgot your name. Margaret. Margaret. I think the particular point that you made just at the end, everything you said was wonderful, but I want to talk about that part about 
to be able to bless the sound outside or, or the shawl on your lap, it, it, that the act of gratitude, which is the act of thanksgiving, which is the act of blessing, is the opposite of the act of imploding, the mind falling in on itself. And it's actually a way of rescuing the mind when it's in free fall from something. If you, you know, okay, this, this I love this blanket, may it remain good, and the sounds, and the fact that I'm alive, and that gratitude in, in, in a very direct way is, I think, a life-saving practice. It keeps rescuing us from falling in and drowning in our, in our, in our difficulty. I wonder, just in the last minute or so, uh, if you want to just say who else you invited. Oscar Pistorius was there, Piers Morgan. Who else came to people's parties? Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa George Bush. Neil, Neil Young. Neil Young. <laughs> Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Aung San Suu Kyi. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> 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 now he came to my party also. He was one of my two people at my party. I also invited um, Placido Domingo. I was having a party, why not? Uh, but you know, that, that whoever said that metta is this great practice, it allows you to have a party and invite the world. Have a party and invite the world. It, and the and the and the the reflection of that is that the world seems a loving place. May I be free of enmity and danger, which is the first line of a metta chant. It means I, I used to think it meant may nobody be coming after me with bad designs, but may I be free of enmity. I think means may I be free of enmity in me. I don't have to agree with the politics of X and Y who I had invited. But I don't have to have ill will towards them. I actually don't have, you know, if you check in your mind any of those people who you think were on their politics, you don't actually wish them ill, I don't think. I mean, I think that you wish something bad happens to them personally, just that they shouldn't be so potent as politicians because they don't like what they're doing. But nothing, may nothing ill befall them, and may they really change their politics or whatever. <laughs> so uh, we'll meet one more time next week. This was actually fun to do. I like this. Uh, and I like that, uh, that gratitude practice of thank you and I love you. It's a, it's a uh, permutation on the end of metta practice. So I would like to remind you that we are about uh, 40 people short of a million dollars on the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, which is not a lot of people, not a lot of people. So I see that Serena is here. Should you want to see the scroll and sign it, I'll remind you that you don't need to sign your name. You get to sign a name if you join, but you could write Aung San Suu Kyi or anybody else that you admire, Dalai Lama. Um, somebody is on there. Twice already. Um, mm -hmm. I don't actually remember who it is that's on twice, but somebody who uh, had two student, uh, different students who admired them. And so, in fact, they're no longer living that person, but they're on the they're on the scroll twice. Uh, Jack and I are on the scroll twice, not because we signed twice, but other people signed. So it's a, you can sign any name that you want. How many people are coming on Sunday to the party? I hope you can come on Sunday to the party. It's going to be a great party. Um, if you haven't yet joined the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, but you really think you're getting ready to do it, just haven't done it yet, come to the party and do it there. We will let you in. So, and it's, it's 2 to 5 on, on Sunday. And um, Anushka is teaching, and Larry is teaching, and Jack is teaching, and I am, and Wes, and Richard Shankman. And Anushka is going to show a slideshow of Buddhist cosmology. It's a great afternoon. So, yeah. 
Here, I think. Here. Here. And apple cider and cookies. Now's your chance, huh? Anyway, may we go forth into our lives buoyed up with a spirit of reconciliation and peace and goodwill and the wise recognition since really gratitude and inclusion and metta has to do with the wisdom that everyone is doing exactly the best they can and they cannot do, or actually everybody is doing the only thing that they can do at this moment. And uh, the theory of loving everyone is that people who are loved and feel loved can't do harm, won't do harm to any beings. So for a peaceful world and a world of, um, in which people support each other and companion each other, may our own practice add to that effort. And may we and our families and our kin and our friends May they also thrive. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and content and come to the end of suffering. <laughs>